Hey there, and welcome to episode 39 of IoT This Week. I'm your host, Craig Smith, and this week we have Alexa Wants to Be a Universal Translator, Mem Crashed with a Side of DDoS, Pre-Crime Re-Education, Imaging a Black Hole, and much more on IoT This Week. All right, so first up, we have Amazon, who is wanting to make Alexa a real-time universal translator. So if you are familiar with the concept from the Star Trek universe, where two people who speak different languages can converse, then that's pretty much what Amazon is trying to get Alexa to. So at this point, it can, I think it can, it can only translate um, short words and phrases at this point, but obviously they want to get it to the point to where you can have a real-time conversation through the Alexa devices or Echo devices. So, and I think one of the one of the ways they're probably going to do that, um, if you remember, I mentioned on the podcast last week or the week before, where Amazon's looking into AI chips for their Echo devices, then that's probably one way they'll make this happen. So if they are able to do this, uh, that would be really, really cool. And then since this seemed to be a slow news week for IoT devices specifically, I put in a article, actually in the newsletter, there's a link to an article from securelist.com that kind of rehashes some of the things you can do as far as breaking IoT devices. So I thought it'd be a fun article for folks to read if you haven't messed with breaking IoT devices. So it goes into, goes into things like physical access, remote access, et cetera. But uh, either way, yeah, if you, uh, if you subscribe to the newsletter, then definitely have a look at that article. And it uh, has some uh, cool examples of things you can do to break IoT devices. And then on to InfoSec, where we have MIM crashed. So I'm sure you guys have seen this in the news over the past week. So MIM crashed, again, because we have to name everything. It's an amplification attack, and if you're not familiar with amplification attacks, basically it turns small packets of data into much larger payloads that uh, get aimed at victims like GitHub and so forth to um, bring them down, essentially. So Memcache, Memcached, uh, so, and again, so if you're not familiar with that particular service, so the, so the amplification attack uses Memcached, which is a service for caching objects in memory to help speed up dynamic web applications. So memcached, the service uses UDP port 11211. And since memcached was never intended to be exposed to the internet, there's no protections in place, there's no security around it. So when people bring up servers, they bring up web servers and they use memcached, then they put memcached out on the internet then it's essentially there for anybody to attack and use as part of these DDoS attacks. So if you've got a web server and you're running Memcache, um, you know, make sure that you don't have this thing exposed to the internet and you know where you're contributing to the um, amplification attack. So like I said, GitHub. Uh, so using this attack, apparently GitHub was hit with a 1.35 terabits per second DDoS attack. And the attack lasted for about eight minutes before they um, used, uh, I think, Google services or something like that for uh, mitigating the DDoS attack. Um, 
So yeah, so 1.35 terabits per second. And then a few days later, you know, not to not to be outdone, you know, I guess I guess now there's a race on for who can produce the largest DDoS attack. Shortly after that, there was a 1.7 terabit per second attack using Memcrash. So yeah, definitely, like I said, if you've got a web server and you've got the Memcache service running on on it, and it's on the internet, um, get it off the internet. And then we have cryptocurrency miners, which we've discussed a couple times in past podcasts. So according to this news article, the occurrence of cryptocurrency miners has has increased by 725% in four months. And that's actually not surprising, given that there's uh, a lot of malware running around out there now that's uh, maliciously installing cryptocurrency miners. There's also legitimate websites that are trying to use cryptocurrency miners to replace lost ad revenue because of ad blockers. Um, you know, some of these sites, some of the legitimate sites, some of them have been doing it, doing the cryptocurrency mining with user permissions. Some haven't. Um, then there's also legitimate sites that are unknowingly being hacked and and having code put on them so that when a user goes to these legitimate sites, they're hit with um, cryptocurrency miners as well. Um, I mean, it's to the point now that where where this has become, I guess it's become more profitable now than actually um, engaging in ransomware attacks. So anyway, yeah, I think it's going to be a continuing trend, legitimate or not, whether you agree with it or not. Um, these things are going to, cryptocurrency miners are going to show up in websites as you surf the internet. Again, I think like I said in the past, if you're looking to block some of these, a lot of these things are going back to CoinHive and um, some variants of that. Um, so that's actually something you can block to stop some of these things. Also, many of the ad blockers now, they're start, they're getting to the point to where they're stopping a lot of these um, cryptocurrency miners. But uh, yeah, like I said, I think it's just going to be something that continues to increase. And then Equifax, I'm sure everyone remembers the 2017 Equifax breach. And apparently it's, or Equifax is saying that uh, there's an additional 2.4 million consumers that have been affected by the breach. So yeah, that happened. And then we have a new study that says more than half of attackers use social engineering to target organizations. Don't really think that's any big surprise since a lot of the times Many breaches and many security incidents happen because of social engineering. A lot of times, the things that make it make the news or the crazy hacks and all that all that kind of stuff because it makes good news headlines. But yeah, social engineering's been around since the beginning of time, I think. So, and and it's not going away anytime soon. So yeah, it's not a big surprise that uh, social engineering attacks still work. And then we have the story where 23,000 HTTPS certificates will have to be revoked after their private keys were compromised. So if you read the whole story, the link is in the uh, newsletter, but there was some drama apparently going on between a company called Trustico and Digicert. What ultimately happened was Trustico sent something to to Digicert to prove something about the, that they own the keys or had the private keys in, the, in their possession. And how they did that was send all those 23,000 private keys in an email. So once they did that, DigiCert 
really had no choice at that time but to go through the motions of revoking all their certificates. So, yeah, some genius decided to, uh, you know, send private keys through email. So good job on that one. And then finally, under InfoSec, we have China, who is rapidly becoming the poster child for the dystopian surveillance state. They are apparently mining big data to, quote, re-educate people before crimes are committed. So I guess they're mining all the data that's out there about a person to try and determine whether they are about to commit a crime or not, and then before a person actually commits a crime, now whether they would have actually committed the crime or not, who knows, but they assume, I guess they will, and they proceed to re-educate them. And along the same lines, there's the story that uh, Palantir has been testing its predictive policing tech in New Orleans. So, so yeah, just, um, yeah, I don't know if we're hurtling towards the dystopian police state in the U.S. too, but uh, hopefully, you know, U.S. doesn't decide to follow China's lead on this and, uh, you know, start trying to, you know, put in place like Minority Report tried to put in the office of pre-crime to, uh, you know, stop crime before it apparently happens. So, yeah, hope we don't head down that road. All right, so let's move into the technology section. So in the ongoing war between Amazon and Google, apparently Amazon will stop selling Nest devices um, soon. Uh, I don't know how big a deal that is. Um, I don't really buy that many Nest devices, but... Seeing how I use Amazon almost exclusively, exclusively for everything I order. If I ever want to order a Nest device, I guess I won't be ordering out, ordering it off of Amazon anytime soon. But uh, yeah, the ongoing war between Amazon and Google continues. With ultimately, usually this the way this ends up is that the uh, consumers end up losing when all this is going on. And I think um, I think this has been off the Amazon's been pulling YouTube off of their Echo devices. I think. Or Google's been making them or something. But anyway, YouTube's been back and forth on uh, Amazon devices. So now I guess Amazon's retaliating by removing Nest devices. And if you happen to follow Formula One, one of the racing teams, Williams, has created a carbon fiber platform for electric cars, which is rather interesting because obviously when it if you're familiar with F1 at all, or if you're not familiar with it, um, Formula One is like highly technical, highly sophisticated, um, extreme tolerances, um, just everything's like high end. So for these guys, the Williams team to be creating a carbon fiber platform, if I was an electric car company, you know, depending on how expensive it is, I mean, it's carbon fiber, so it's probably not cheap, um, but I'd definitely be taking a look at that. And then a project called Event Horizon Telescope, which I think was actually started um, back in April 2017. Um, they're actually, and I think they've already taken the images, um, so they're actually trying to piece together an image um, of a black hole, uh, which is something that's obviously it's a black hole, so it's a little hard to image, but they may have found out a way to use multiple telescopes from around the globe to try and image the um, supposed black hole that's at the uh, center of the Milky Way galaxy. So that'll be extremely cool if they're able to do that. And then we have a survey by 
Piper Jaffrey, where they surveyed 1,500 people and asked them why they haven't upgraded to the iPhone 10. So there's probably more reasons than what the article had. Um, they put four reasons in here, like 31% said, yes, haven't upgraded because it's too expensive, which is one of the reasons why I held out so long before I actually finally gave in to my um, technology addiction and went and bought one. Um, 8% said, yes, haven't upgraded because I prefer a larger screen. 44% said they haven't upgraded because their iPhone, their current iPhone works just fine. And then 17% haven't upgraded for a, another reason. Um, if this many people aren't upgrading, maybe, maybe this is a reason behind the um, lower than expected sales of the iPhone 10. So um, interesting nonetheless. And then MoviePass. Um, so if you haven't heard about MoviePass, um, it's something I would actually like to try. However, usually the movies I go to, especially in the area I live in, we have the dine-in theaters, so I don't usually go to the normal, just regular theaters. And I think this movie pass only works in the normal or the uh, regular, typical theaters. But apparently you can pay a subscription fee and then go to as many movies as you want, I believe. But there was a big stir over their movie pass app, mobile app, where it was apparently tracking you to and from the theater for um, some reason or another. I'm sure they had a good reason why they were doing it. Um, but when obviously when people find out that kind of stuff's going on, it kind of causes a stir and a little bit of backlash against app makers who do that. And then finally, to wrap things up, and this is literally something I was messing with before I started to report, record the podcast, now you can run Kali Linux on Windows 10, and that's using the Windows subsystem for Linux, which is something I hadn't messed with until now. So I had to enable it on my Windows 10 system, and then you go about installing uh, Kali Linux on there. Um, so once you do that, you can run um, Kali from the command line, uh, which is cool. Um, however, if you want a desktop, there's a video showing you um, how to... Um, run a script that will install one of the uh, various Linux desktops on there and then you can remote use remote desktop to go into it So I tried all that now the thing with remote desktop and Linux They always seem to be super slow compared to remote desktop the uh, or the um, remote desktop Client that's built into Windows for some reason or another So I'm not really sure although it's cool to run Kali Linux on there um, Especially if you don't have access to uh, VMware or something like that um, then obviously that's the way to do it without having that. However, it seems like it may still be speedier if you're, I mean, if you're speed sensitive, which I am, um, you might still want to run it in VMware or something like that. Um, what's the other one? Um, oh, Oracle um, VirtualBox. You can also run it in there, which is free. VMware obviously you have to pay for. Um, but anyway, um, that's something I'm going to continue to mess with. Um, and like I said, if you have Kali or if you're interested in Kali Linux, and you have limited resources, then this is um, running it on Windows 10 using the Windows subsystem for Linux um, is a good way to give it a try. All right, so that is the podcast for this week, guys. Um, as always, you can reach me at CraigV28 on Twitter or via email podcast at iotthisweek.com for any comments and such. Uh, but other than that, that's it for this week. So have a great day, guys. Talk to you later. Bye.